Glenn Hutchins co-founded Silver Lake in 1999, and it has become one of the world's largest private equity firms investing in technology companies. It has invested in some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Airbnb and Twitter. Hutchins serves on several boards and is a part owner of the Boston Celtics. He now runs North Island with his son, James. It invests mainly in financial companies and the crypto space. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Sherwer, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo Finance, and I'm joined by Glenn Hutchins, Chairman of North Island. He was a co-founder of Silver Lake and part owner of the Boston Celtics, and his son, James, who runs North Island Ventures. Gentlemen, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Andy. Hi, Andy. Thank you. So, James, I have to start with you. I'm going to ask you, uh, tell us how you guys uh, work together and, and what's that like a little bit? You know, it's actually been one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Um, growing up, my dad was just my dad. He was my little league coach. He was the guy that I sat and watched sports with. I kind of knew off to the side that he was this respected member of the private equity community, but he didn't bring that home. So it's been really nice to kind of see him in a work setting. And, you know, he's just a font of wisdom. He pulls on 30 years of experience investing just to help me and my partner, Travis, be better investors. And it's been really amazing experience so far. Well, Glenn, that must make you feel pretty good. Some some nice words there from your son. And talk I think about- I can just stop right there, Andy. <laughs> okay, we're done. We're done. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. Is that what you're suggesting? Exactly. No. Exactly. Anyway, that's that's must be nice to hear. Talk a little bit more specifically about how you work together and, and what James is doing right now. We're pretty familiar, I guess, with your career, but tell us what James is up to. Yeah, so I would first thing I would say, Andy, is this is not a family business. Uh, this is uh, one of the early uh, movers in the crypto uh, venture capital space. Uh, James and his partner, Travis, both bring um, a very top-shelf investing experience. James was head of research at Co2, which is the world's largest tech hedge fund, I think. Uh, Travis had uh, been the uh, head of investments for Digital Currency Group, which is one of the leading um, uh, cryptocurrency companies where I sit on the board, and I'm a shareholder. Uh, and so the first thing we, this is, is that these are two of the best investors kind of in the space, uh, independent of, in my view, kind of our family relationship. That's kind of point one. I think the second thing is that um, people need to understand is that James and Travis are the managing partners and I'm just in the general partner. They're the ones really doing all the work and uh, making the investments, doing the due diligence, uh, working with the companies. And my role has largely been to uh, do two things. One is to help them think about investments and particularly portfolio construction. Uh, and the second is to help turn these companies that we're investing in, in, these projects that we're investing in into companies. The cryptocurrency world is at the time period in which you're going from pro building products to forming business models around products. That's at the stage of its development. Uh, and unlike uh, other investors in this space that have focused primarily on the coins and the tokens like Bitcoin or Ethereum or other things like that, we're, we're overwhelmingly focused on building companies. And so that's my second contribution. Hey, James, um, I'm curious about the back and forth between you guys when it comes to crypto. And, you know, I know your dad knows a lot about crypto. I mean, he was explaining to me years ago 
Um, so at first, maybe the, the learnings came from him. But at this point, are you telling him stuff about crypto that he doesn't know? Well, I mean, I'd say, you know, we both collaborate. You know, he brings this 30 years of investing in finance and technology. And I would say, you know, I'm taking what he taught me about crypto and kind of expanding it. So we've taken his view of how this is the next great kind of payments technology. And we're thinking about how can you build new types of businesses, new types of online communities around that. So at the end of the day, we're kind of standing on his shoulders at all times, really. So I came at this, Andy, as a um, out of fintech. Uh, and when you and I probably first talked about this many years ago, my view is this was the place that we could transform the cost and convenience of payments, which is a still undisrupted part of the financial services economy, particularly credit cards, but also remittances, foreign exchange transactions, those sorts of things. Uh, what James has done together with Travis is really extend my understanding, first of all, that this technology can address anything of value, not just the conventional payments world. And second, that it actually points in the direction of a brand new computing paradigm, which is really transformative. Len, let me shift gears a little bit and pick your brain about uh, the recovery, the U.S. recovery right now. Where do you think we are at this point? Well, um, so the third, second quarter was down a third. Third quarter was uh, up a third, which means you're still about 17% short of where you started, right? You need to go back up 50% to get back to the, get the third back that you lost. So we're starting out down about 17%. And so what I, the way I put it is the, the depression is over and now the recession is setting in. We're not in a period of recovery. You shouldn't confuse the bounce back as one of recovery, in my view. Uh, and the long-term consequences of the damage done to the economy by the fundamental mismanagement of the pandemic are what we're dealing with right now. So I would say we're in, we've gone from, the good news is we're no longer in depression-like circumstances. The bad news is we're in pretty severe recession-like circumstances. And what about a stimulus here, Glenn? And, and why has Congress struggled so mightily to get this done? Well, stimulus is absolutely vital, Andy. I mean, there's a, um, there's a, uh, 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 a piece of analysis up on the Brookings website right now that demonstrates we need about $2 trillion of stimulus to get back to trend growth. Uh, and it, it almost certainly needs to be heavily tilted toward unemployment insurance because that's what's clearly has had the most amount of impact given the nature of this problem, which was a sudden shock to employment. Um, the, po the political experts can explain to you why we're not getting anything done. But look, for, in, from my perspective, it's some combination of uh, the, the Senate Republicans decided to focus on a Supreme Court nomination rather than stimulus. They pr clearly prioritized that. So valuable time was wasted there. And according to the um, new... Uh, uh, most recent analyses, <clears throat> they actually, are, you need 13 Republicans to team with the 47 Democrats to get something done. And they're, they're such an ideological um, opposition to spending more money that they're actually having trouble getting rounding up those, getting consensus around those 13 Republicans to get things done. Um, so, I, but, I, but that's just what I read in the newspapers. Uh, it's really too bad because the economy vitally needs it. Um, if we had had the OECD average, the 38 most wealthy countries in the world performance with respect to management of the pandemic, we would have had about, there's another Brookings report on this, we would have had about 100,000 less people die and nearly 9 million pe fewer people unemployed. 
So <laughs> the, we're we're in a you know you saw the China economy starting to grow again. We're in a very bad place uh, with respect to how we manage the pandemic and the economic consequences of that are manifest and they're going to be long term and they need to be addressed. James, over to you. I want to ask you about crypto and the time of COVID. How has the pricing and the markets gone during this time? I mean, and it speaks to this larger issue of what is crypto and the, the world of crypto writ large correlated to? But why don't you take the first part of that first? Sure. So like everything um, at the beginning of the pandemic in March, there was this risk off period where there was some large drawdowns and sell downs, both in the, the Bitcoin and Ethereum markets. However, you know, as people started to realize that, you know, cryptocurrencies are this global permissionless financial system where anyone can kind of access these markets, anyone can send money around the world, there was actually been a huge rebound. And actually, for the last three or four months, we've seen an enormous explosion in decentralized financial applications built on Ethereum. And so we've actually seen a huge boom time during the, the COVID crisis that people have started to understand the power of digitally native finance in a time of kind of lockdowns and everyone stuck inside. And, and what do you think um, crypto, you know, when will it sort of become hit, become a mass thing in terms of um, financial services? So right now you keep saying it's sort of on the edges of things and JP Morgan kind of says this, yep, we're all, we love crypto too, but you know, we're not really, that's not mainstream for us. Talk to us about the, the future evolution of uh, this world, if you will. Sure, happy to. So um, we're starting to reach kind of mainstream adoption in the stable coin space. So stable coins are dollar denominated crypto assets that live on these networks like Ethereum. And they allow anybody to kind of access the US dollar market. And th this year, we're going to see about $800 billion of transactional value in stable coins, which is about a half a percentage of kind of annual global transaction volumes. So I would say we're getting pretty close to kind of real usage um, at a large scale in stable coins. And then the other place that we see kind of the beginnings of mass adoption is in crypto collectibles or video games. And so taking a step back, crypto networks are the first place where you can have provable digital ownership of items. For the first time, I can prove that I own a trading card. I own a piece of a video game. And companies like Flow um, are starting to build video games with large brands like the NBA. In this game called NBA Top Shot, where you can buy, sell, and trade NBA trading cards. And I think that might be the first place where we see kind of real mass adoption of kind of crypto. And the trading card isn't a conventional trading card like you think of it. No. It's, right, it's a unique video clip of your player doing something important as a trading card. It's all new stuff. Hey, Glenn, how much of a existential threat is crypto to legacy financial services companies, ultimately? Well, I, look, I think that the important thing about crypto is that it worked inside the regulatory framework of various countries. So uh, there will always be a role for deposit, regulated deposit-taking institutions that operate inside um, the AML, KYC, deposit insurance, all that kind of heavy capital-invested type of framework. The, the, I think the, the primary place where crypto is, is addressable is all the other products and services that don't relate directly to deposit taking and lending. 
the technology associated with the infrastructure and the um, payment system, uh, the custody system, the clearing, all the kind of stuff which turns out to be the high profit margin business for a lot of these banks, but don't aren't at the center of their regulated kind of mission. I think that's the kind of most important piece of it. But the the I think later on what we will see is this new form of computing, which is decentralized, will eliminate the need for large hierarchical institutions like big banks to be the owners of the truth about who owns what. And as a consequence of which that takes a massive amount of cost out of the system uh, and um, revolutionizes the cost basis of finance. And that'll challenge the business model of some of the largest institutions. That could take time, but don't forget in technology, we always overestimate what can happen in a year and underestimate what can happen in a decade. Right, sure enough. Hey, let me switch over to politics, Glenn. I remember you telling me early on in this campaign season that the candidate should be Joe Biden for the Democrats until proven otherwise. And I think that the way you actually frame that, it actually came to pass. In other words, there was no proving otherwise, and we have Joe Biden. How do you feel about him as a candidate right now? And what do you think his chances are to win very soon? So, Andy, one of my rules of investing is only fools predict interest rates, stock prices, and elections. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I will tell you from a business person's perspective, I think the main point here is that this centrist has centrists consistently have won in the Democratic Party in 18 and 20. Uh, and the kind of policies that Joe Biden is putting forward is those that he will adopt that he used, that he ran on in the primaries, and that he says he will adopt as, as president, have been reviewed by you know places like Goldman Sachs and Moody's and Penn Wharton, and all those, and all are ones that uh, will promote economic growth. Um, so I think uh, from the business perspective, business community's perspective, there should be nothing to be concerned about in, um, with respect to a Biden presidency, if it comes to pass. If it comes to pass, one of his proposals is an increase in taxes for corporations and Americans making. Uh, more than 400k, that doesn't concern you. Well, no, it's a return to tax policy very similar to what happened during the Obama and Clinton administrations, in which there was booming economic growth, uh, terrific stock market performance. Uh, the reason why the um, uh, analyses of those plans turn out to be positive is that money turns around and gets reinvested uh, in a variety of initiatives that are uh, growth promoting. Uh, and you know we have to remember that the uh, Trump tax cut uh, was largely used for stock buybacks. Uh, it did not have generated significant increase either in investment or in employment. Uh, and so, it, as a result of which, it didn't generate any economic growth. The economic growth of the four quarters preceding the Trump tax cut is identical to the economic growth of the four quarters following it. Right. Um, and so we need to have an economic policy that promotes growth and also that protects the balance sheet of the American government. Yeah. Um, back in May, you told me that many retail stores uh, were likely to go away permanently after the pandemic. Um, still feel that way? Well, look, I think there's a whole host of economic arrangements largely around the bricks and mortar economy that are going to have a very tough time. Well, you've seen the number of retail bankruptcies there's been. Right. Uh, you know, and, and the weakest of those, Penny, Sears, et cetera, uh, are kind of laboring mightily. Uh, but also, I think commercial real estate will be significantly um, uh, resorted. 
right? Uh, plus other fundamental changes in commuting uh, and all the infrastructure around that. Uh, so I think that the, uh, as we said earlier, the pandemic um, will cause accelerate a bunch of changes that are already in place, plus promote some new ones like the Zoom economy. Uh, but um, I think the 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 weak the weak will at least the back of that herd is probably the the physical retail companies that were already laboring entering the crisis. James, um, does it matter for crypto if there is a Biden presidency or Trump's second term? No, I mean, we're very early in the life of crypto, and it's about just enabling developers to keep building. And I don't think politics really factor into to how crypto will do in the next couple of years. Let me ask you uh, both about LL Cool J, who is on our program. And I understand that you guys have maybe both a personal and business relationship with him, or I guess I should say business and personal relationship with him. James, why don't I start with you? Sure. So I, I call him Todd. So I, I, I met LL Cool J as Todd um, in his business capacity. And he was um, beginning to start Rock the Bells. And I had done a lot of research in the digital media space. And, you know, we really hit it off. He's a he's a really exceptional person. Um, and I helped him think through his business model and Rock the Bells. And it was just it was a really special experience. Todd was an incredibly gracious host to me in L.A. And I'm really excited to, about what he's building. Glenn, what's your take on this? Well, look, I think it's great. I thought, as James said, is a really great human being. Uh, you know, he, in addition to being kind of uh, one of the people who created and uh, really invented rap, he uh, has been very successful as an actor in addition to being a performer and then a business person in in, uh, in the business space. He owns uh, the franchise for NCIS, I think it's Los Angeles, as well as Lip Sync Battle, as well as having his own serious XM channel. So this is a, he's, he's a real entrepreneur and a, and a polymath. Um, I had the good fortune to meet him when we gave him an award at Touching Center for African American Research at Harvard. We got to know each other. Uh, I introduced him to the venture capitalist, uh, Jeff Yang, who kind of uh, put, who, with whom he uh, created Rock the Bells, and then they hired James to write the business plan um, with them. So it's, and we're all investors in it. So it's great. So we wish, wish Todd nothing but the best. I still can't get used to calling him Todd, but I'll let you guys keep doing that. Yeah. Hey. Um, Last question here for both of you. Um, Glenn, I'll start with you. What advice do you have for a father and son looking to work together? I'll actually ask James, what is your advice? <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, it's just all about, you know, leveraging the foundation that you have as a, as a father and son. Don't try to be anything that you're not and just go from there. I think that's the power of the relation, the business relationship that my dad and I have is that we don't try to be anything other than father and son. And I think that really makes us special and unique. And I think the other thing I would say, Andy, is I think we recommend this to a lot of parents who are thinking about this, fathers and mothers, um, is it's very important for the kids to uh, go out into the real world uh, and prove themselves uh, first. Uh, for two reasons. One is because it, they gain enormous experience and credibility. Um, and the second is because then they have, it's an addition to their self-confidence that they know they were tested in the real world first before we did this thing together. We're going to leave it at that. Glenn Hutchins and James Hutchins, thank you both so much for your time and best of luck to you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Andy.